podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. All right, Glenn, welcome back. First, I guess we should quickly address it's been a few months since our last episode, and we've just been so slammed with, with work. But we did talk to somebody about some new technology that can help us edit faster, and I'm really looking forward to using it here on this episode. And depending on how that goes, that should help clear the path to make it easier to get these out on a more regular basis going forward. Agreed. We have a little bit of stuff in the can that needs a bit of editing, but again, as we always say, we're hopeful to record more often and then be able to kick out more episodes. We just want our fans to know we really are, we mean well. (laughs) We just aren't always able to execute that well-meaningness. Exactly. Well, you've got a new idea for opening the show in 2022-23 season. Season 10? I think, of the the podcast. Yeah, we can call it that. Okay. Yeah, I would call this segment uh, Where in the World? So what I'll do is I'll give you three little interesting factoids and name the country that would be corresponding to the little factoids I'm talking about. And it's not going to be some weird country you've never heard of or wouldn't know how to spell necessarily. It'll it'll be a, a country that's recognizable. So, so where in the world, even? Eh? Ooh, I like that. Where <laughs> okay. in the world? <laughs> okay. And now that you mention it, I never even thought to bring up like fingerprint trivia related to this. I just found these to be just little three factoids sure. of, of interest that see if you can name the country. So the, the first one, and this probably is the most obvious one, so it's probably the biggest giveaway, but oh, and you know what? I'll give that one last. The first one is, this country has the oldest zoo in the world, considered the first zoo, in fact. Okay. The next yeah, one is... something in mind, the, but we'll, we'll keep going. Yeah, the next one is that it's the home of the hot dog, although somewhat debatable, and we can discuss. And then lastly, it's the birthplace of Amadeus Mozart. Oh, sorry, boy. sorry. It's the birthplace of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Right, right, right. Of course, you gotta, you gotta have the the Wolfgang in there. I, I, I Austria. Well done, sir. Yes. Very okay. Good. good. Very good. Thank you to Falco for a little bit of trivia yes. on on Mozart there. <laughs> yes, Austrian <laughs> pop singer. Falco. Yeah. No, that's fun. Okay, I'm looking forward to more traveling the world. Okay. A geo-guesser game. That's there, great. There's a lot of focus on these geo-guessing games, and people seem to enjoy that. Yeah, the thing about the hot dog that's interesting is there's a debate. There's an argument between Germany and Austria, again, about who uh, who is the inventor of the hot dog. So, of course, in Austria, it's a wiener, or as we, you know, as they would say there, Wiener in German, so from right. Vienna, the, the wiener, the wiener. And then you've got Frankfurter from Frankfurt, Germany. So which one is really the, the source of the hot dog? Is it the wiener or the Frankfurter? You, the listener, may decide. With my ancestry tr- tracing back to areas around Frankfurt, I'm, I'm going to go with that one. So. All right. That's fine. <laughs> I don't have a, a dog in that hunt. A hot dog in that hunt. At- oh, how did I yeah. miss that? Oh, for God's sake. So obvious. <laughs> Good one, I'm, man. I'm... No, these are all terrible. I, I, I feel like I've got like eight eye rolls out of people already. So. Yeah, yeah, I guess you got your dad joke in. <laughs> in um, any way, exactly. I'm just sneaking it in anyway. All right. So also want to thank our newest Patreon members. If you want to be a patron, you can go to patreon.com slash double loop podcast and send us a dollar or a couple bucks a month. So here's our newest ones. I can't remember exactly how far back I went last time since it's been a few months since we recorded, so I'm just going to go back a few months here. Big thanks to Renee, Hannah, Ryan, Anya, Lawrence, Jen, Joshua, Danielle, and Brianna. Really appreciate you guys and all of our other patrons as well for, uh, for helping us keep this going for so many years now. Yeah, guys, thank you. Always appreciate it. We... We owe you more episodes. We know. We know. We're working on it. We're going to work on quality, not quantity, this year. And we've got a really good one here. Well, a couple lined up here next up. Getting Agreed. back into you know a, a historical case related to fingerprints and going on a deep dive of something people may have heard of, maybe not have heard of, but an important part of fingerprint history. 
Yes. So before we jump into that, real quickly, just let listeners know about some courses that are coming up in 2023. For for my schedule, I'll be doing some webinars at the end of the year. My usual cycle of webinars, the OSAC prep or OSAC implementation webinar, a webinar on blood prints and uh, bias and so forth. Go to evolveforensics.com, Alice's website for signing up for those. And then for the live courses, I'll be teaching, and Canadian listeners, I'll be in Canada with John Black teaching exclusion and sufficiency in Calgary, or Calgary, as apparently some will say. That will be March 6th through the 9th in Canada, so one of the rare Canadian courses. And then I'll be teaching in Houston, April 17th through 21, that's the advanced ASB course. And then finally, May 1 through 3, that will be in Seattle with Kerry Hall and Brendan Max, the courtroom testimony, practical answers for challenging questions in the courtroom. So go to ronsmithandassociates.com to check out those courses and register today. All right, Glenn, let's jump into the episode now. This is the case of Alan McNamara from the UK. And this time around, you took all the notes. So why don't you, why don't you get us going? Sure. So setting this up, right, as you said, this is the Alan McNamara case. And just before we go in, a little bit of trivia, Eric. You may know this. I, I did not know this. But, I, you know, I've reviewed English cases before over, you know, over time. You know, they're often referred to as RV something, RV this. You know, in this case is RV McNamara, and the R stands for Regina. Do you know why it's Regina versus McNamara? I wouldn't have been able to pull out Regina there. I would... I would have thought that it's somehow standing in for the crown or the you know, the state, but now that you say Regina, it's clearly it's the queen. It's like Latin for queen. Very so. good. Yes, I I didn't realize that. For, I never occurred to me that queen is Regina in Latin. And interesting factoid. Here's the point: they will now be changing to Rex versus so and so. Yeah, that's right. Now that they now that they have a king. Anyway, I, I, I found that fascinating anyway, so yes. The, we're going to be discussing the case of R.V. McNamara. This is a case out of England. It's a case that originated actually in, the, in Manchester, England. And it's a case that I have been fascinated by for over 20 years. I first heard about it in the year 2000 from Pat Wertheim. Pat Wertheim used to teach, or he would show some images from this and talk about it in his class, his cert- certification prep classes, a radiology course he used to teach. So that's where I first heard it, in November 2000, when I was first starting off. And at that time, Pat had just, or was still involved in the Shirley McKee case, and then he had become embroiled in this Alan McNamara case. And we'll talk about how they relate a little bit later. There is a bit of a relationship between the two cases. And I remember Pat talking about it. And he actually had, Pat had shared some of the images that he had had at that time with me afterwards. And then when Pat stopped teaching, I realized that no one was really teaching this case or talking about it. So if people have had my advanced ACE V course, I spend about 15 minutes talking about this case, kind of keeping this case alive. I've always been fascinated by it. And then for the last few years, I've actually been trying to reach out to Alan McNamara. I wanted to actually talk to him, try to get a little bit more background on the case. And as coincidence would have it, I was meeting with a friend, Rochelle Babbler, in San Diego. We were having dinner one night. And we were talking about how she used to teach on forgery and fabrication cases, and she mentioned Alan McNamara's case. And I said, wow, that's you know fascinating. I, and I gave the same speech I just gave. And she's like, oh, I have Alan's contact. She looks it up on the phone, and she has it right there. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. She said, I haven't emailed him in years. I don't know if it's still good, but here's his email. Wow. A couple weeks later, I finally sit down and write an email to him, and probably within 15 minutes, he responds and is like, oh, I would love to talk about this. So we are going to go through today's episode and go through a timeline, talk about the facts of the case, kind of get all the, the informational stuff out, many facts which really aren't being disputed. And then in the next episode, we'll get Alan McNamara to talk about the experience that he went through in this case. And I guess now will be a, a time to kind of 
kind of quickly go through the high points of the case and we'll dig in the timeline a little bit. Absolutely. No, I'm really excited to be able to talk with Alan and get that kind of perspective. We've done episodes like this before, you know, recently with the uh, Stephen Cowan's Cowan's. case. I guess we haven't really talked directly to the accused or the person affected by the case before. This is kind of a, a new thing for us, so definitely excited. Yeah, for sure. So, all right, so if listeners don't know the case, here's just a very high-level view summary of the case. In 1999, there is a burglary in this home, and a number of things, electronics, computers, a computer, jewelry, and things are stolen from the house, and then also a set of keys to a Land Rover, which was sitting in the driveway, so the Land Rover and all this other stuff. I believe, it, according to the case info, it totaled over you know, 30,000 pounds in UK. And Most of that <clears throat> probably being the Land Rover. And this is just a little more on the geography side. This is in Rochdale in the UK, which is like the kind of the northwest portion of the country. Right, yes. Just, and, a, just and, a bit north of Manchester. Exactly. Manchester's kind of above the Midlands area, and then this is a northern suburb of Manchester. And, you know, looking up even on Google Maps, there's, it's, this house is just kind of on the outskirts of even Rochdale, and it's a couple houses away from a, a golf course. It's just like a nice neighborhood, mm-hmm. nice little brick house. Exactly. And Land Rover should also give that away. That's true, yeah. So the, the house is burglarized. A number of things are stolen. A crime scene investigator comes the following day and dusts the scene, multiple objects at the scene, makes some lifts, two lifts, in fact, are recovered. The prints are brought back to their fingerprint bureau, and several weeks later, they're run through the APHIS system. They get a hit to a man by the name of Alan McNamara, and we'll, again, we'll, we'll go in and talk about all these little facts and, and break this apart, but Alan McNamara is identified as the source of one of the fingerprints on a lift that is said to have come from a jewelry box that was in the bedroom. There was this jewelry box with multiple drawers from which the jewelry was taken and had been moved. The box had been moved as well, set on the floor. And allegedly, his right thumbprint had been recovered from the, the top of this jewelry box. It was on the lift. And then he was identified as a source, and then several months later, he's arrested. He denies having any involvement in this or ever having been there or doing any of these things. He doesn't fit the normal bill of a burglar. He's married, well-to-do businessman. He owns his own business. He owns a basically like a, I wouldn't call it a dollar store, but kind of a knick-knack and sundries, general homewares kind of store, kind of a dollar store, but not exactly, but he sells, you know, home home goods and things like that, and he's the, the proprietor of this store, and he denies, you know, again, having done any of this, why would a fairly well-to-do upscale businessman without a history of drug use and burglary and theft and all the things you normally see, why would this person suddenly choose to burglarize a house 30 minutes away in, in another town out of the blue. So anyway, so he denies and he assumes that the, that the police have just made a mistake. That, that's the only thing that really could have happened. The Shirley McKee case is very famous at this time, even in England, going on. It's on the news quite a bit. So he assumes that they've made the same kind of mistake that the Scottish police had made. They must have misidentified him. So he ends up hiring Pat Wertheim, who had worked the, the McKee case. Pat gets involved looks at the print and goes, no, this is a genuine identification. This is, this is definitely you. This is your latent print. But my concern is this lift doesn't look like it came from the jewelry box. In fact, it looks like it might have come from another surface, maybe a curved surface, perhaps a vase in the house because there were some vases in the house, and we'll get to all that a little bit later. And there's a, bunch, there's a bunch of other experts that get involved, and they dispute that the lift came from this sort of flat and we'll talk about this again too, the texture of this jewelry box, a dispute that came from that, must have come from another surface, perhaps even a vase that maybe in the course of owning the store, perhaps he sold this vase to the homeowner or the homeowner bought this vase in another store from which a distributor that Alan had worked with. There must be some reasonable, innocent explanation how the print got on that surface. Again, multiple experts get involved, write reports, and then about a year later, it goes to trial, 
they present the evidence, and we'll get into the defense and some other things, but ultimately, at the end of the trial, it's basically two and a half days, Alan McNamara is convicted for the burglary, and he's sentenced a month later to two and a half years in jail for the burglary, and ends up going to jail. Throughout this, more evidence comes forward, more experts get involved, and eventually he serves his time in prison, and when he's released, he continues to fight it, and continues to maintain his innocence. He goes through an appellate process. The appellate court says, no, we don't see any error here. We think that that was the right call, given the evidence in this case. And he still continues to fight for his innocence and his name, and then takes it to basically a review board in England that looks at potentially wrongful convictions called the CCRC, that's Criminal Cases Review Commission, and again, present all this evidence to them, and ultimately they go, no, we refuse to make any recommendations to the appellate court. Sorry, we kind of agree with the original decision. Seems like they made the right call in this case. And, there, and after that, there's nowhere you can really go. That's, that's the end of it. So, and that was in 2013. So basically for the last 10 years, this has kind of sat with him that he's got no recourse. He's desperate to clear his name. He maintains his innocence throughout all of this, and we want to look at maybe some of the other explanations for what could have happened in this case, but that's the overall summary of the case. Did I leave out any major factoid points, Eric? No, that's, that's a great summary, and yeah, I can't wait to sink our teeth into a few of these points along the way, but that's a, a great summary of the, of the whole big picture. All right. Well, then let's, let's start with that. Let's start with the beginning and, and jump in where you, you see some stuff. So the, the burglary happened on May 29th, 1999. The, the Shears family, that's S-H-E-A-R-S, Mr. and Mrs. and their three kids go away on holiday for a long holiday bank weekend there in the U.K., and they, they live at an address called 12 Greenshank Close, C-L-O-S-E. I wasn't familiar with this term either. It's basically English for a cul-de-sac. Like That's what I was kind of out. figuring. Yeah, it's a, a, kind of at the end of the street near a golf course in a very nice neighborhood in this Rochdale neighborhood. And as you pointed out, in the area of Manchester. And when they were leaving, they had asked a, a neighbor to watch, kind of keep an eye on the house. And there was some suspicion of the timing of all of this because it's, it's very strange that they happen to leave, go out on holiday, and then that night in a cul-de-sac area, not an easily accessible place, someone basically burglarizes the house that night, stealing the things that we talked about, and none of it was ever recovered. The Range Rover, the jewelry, the computer, TV, DVDs, CDs, all this stuff that sounds like a typical thing a burglar would collect for pawning, things that usually would get pawned. For, again, from my experience and probably your experience working numerous burglaries. They took the Nintendo 64, man. I mean, they took everything. <laughs> they did. I mean, again, and they, again, those are hot ticket items for, for pawn shops. Right. At some point the next day, presumably the neighbor notices that the, you know, the, the Range Rover is gone out of the driveway. They end up calling the police. The police come, investigate. They send a crime scene officer, or SOCO as it's called, S-O-C-O in, in many English, British type countries. So SOCO, scene of crime officer. And his name is Terry or Terrence Birchall of the Greater Manchester Police. We'll refer to them as a occasionally, the GMP, Greater Manchester Police. And uh, he shows up at the scene around noon, and he dusts multiple items in the house that appear disturbed, the jewelry box, vases. He's looking for things that appear to have been moved around, which, again, makes sense. So he, there are four different vases in the house. He powdered and dusted several of them, the jewelry box, a pot, other surfaces as well. And he used... And I want to talk about this a little bit. He used, as the, the British would say, aluminum, as we might say in America, aluminum, aluminum flake powder and tape to lift, and then he would place it on acetate sheets. And then they would also usually, although he didn't in this case, mark a gravitational arrow. Had you ever heard that term before, Eric, gravitational arrow? No, I have not. What, what does that mean? So we, in the U.S., when we lift, we always mark up. They mark down. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, Interesting. I, I did not know that. that. I would have found that terribly confusing. <laughs> okay. I mean, 
you know, one's as good as the other, I guess. But, uh, not if uh, you don't know that, though. Well, exactly. Not if you don't know that. <laughs> All uh, right. So have you ever used aluminum flake powder? I've not. I just used standard black and magnetic powder. Sometimes mix the two together, and I don't recall ever using the aluminum stuff. Right. So this, is, this will come up a little bit later. I found it kind of important because it's a bit of a silver gray powder. And it is a slightly weirder, different consistency than I'm used to. I mean, you know, we, we've joked about this before on the podcast. You know, <laughs> clear lifts of basically, so it's basically a you know, clear lift sheet and then using a light colored powder, which requires a scan and usually then the high contrast as well, which will make the images available and as much documentation as Alan will approve of. But we'll try to make as much possible, including images of the lifts. And one of the first things you'll notice on the lifts is they're all photographic negatives, and they're all very high contrast. Again, because when you scan these aluminum, lighter gray, clear lifts in, you then have to do a little bit of work to get a good image to clearly see the fingerprints with high contrast. Yeah, which can be challenging. So, Glenn, in all this documentation that Alan provided us, you know, one of the things that I started out looking at is the, the crime scene examination report from the Greater Manchester Police. So there's not a whole lot here. It, it's where the suspected point of entry and point of exit were, how he got in, some notes, and then a list of the two lifts that were taken from the scene. Right, um, yes. It looks like they got into the back patio door by using some sort of tool to like take off, to take the doors off. So this patio door is taken off. Mm-hmm. And then the lifts were lift one from what's called a vase lounge. So I'm assuming a, a vase in the lounge. Although um, on the actual lift, it only says vase. Right. They, that, that was kind of added later. The actual lift just has the word vase at the bottom. Got it. And then, well, I mean, theoretically, sometimes just kind of knowing how going out to a scene works, you know, you're supposed to write everything down as you do it, but sometimes... Mm-hmm. You go quick and you don't write everything down right away. You kind of fill in some of your notes after you've got everything collected together. So, That's but then, also one of the, the criticisms and possible issues in the case here. Exactly. And then lift two, a jewelry box, bedroom, top right hand, front edge. Right, a, which the lift only says jewelry box. Which is, first off, quite a big difference in just the level of documentation, how clear it, it, it is between the two. And then also on this note, it, one of the notes down at the bottom is very clean house. Yes. And we'll, that, that'll come into play a whole lot later, but just note that now. But you're going through and describing some other, some other areas that were at least powdered, but just no lifts were taken. And that seems right. like that was maybe somewhere else in, in all of these files that we have, but, but not, it wasn't like in a in scene notes. There wasn't like no definitive scene notes describing what what was actually powdered. Is that right? Yeah, that's a very good point. In fact, it might have come from either testimony or possibly even one of the committees or appellate court bringing bringing up statements, or he had been interviewed and asked questions many times. So these were statements that he made. He powdered a bunch of other surfaces, but didn't take any lips from them that we know of, because like you said, the scene documentation, the most contemporaneous and most useful basically only lists these two lifts and does not say what other objects really had been powdered. This is just his personal recollection. Got it. So we get these, these two lifts. So let's start talking about the lifts first. I mean, the one that they identified to Alan McNamara, well, that's, that is clearly the best lift or the best latent on either of these cards. It's like, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's a big left loop, probably a thumb, just even by looking at the, just the shape of it. It's got some incipients in there. It's like, it's, yes. it's nice and pretty. But holy cow, the, the creases, Glenn, there are, throughout both lifts, there are a whole lot of tape creases. This doesn't look like someone who does lifts every day or on even a fairly regular basis. It you pretty quickly figure out how to not leave creases in tape unless it's some sort of more complex, curvy kind of surface. Yeah, I mean, that was a point of criticism from several people was that the technique that he used, the inability to keep the creases out, and basically what you're talking about are 
<laughs> what do we call them? Wrinkle tape folds, WTFs. We, we were talking yep. about this with Rebecca at one point. Yeah, these are basically folds in the tape. This is kind of operator error. And yeah, they, they definitely stand out. And I, I'm sure this is where you're going as well, that one of the biggest issues, of course, is the shape, the outline of the lift. And this is what I would show in class. I would explain to the class this was said to have come from basically a painted wooden jewelry box, flat surface. And then I would show this, and then every single student who I've ever shown it to in the last 17 years has all, you know, who, with any crime scene experience, have all looked and went, that came from a round surface. And I'd correct them and go, not just a round surface, a tapered surface. Mm. And that to me is one of the, I know they often talk about being a round object throughout this case. Actually, there's one expert that is very clear, and he says it every time, tapered surface. The scalloping happens when the tape tries to go around the neck of something that tapers. You'll get this weird, if anyone has children, you've ever tried to put construction paper around, you know, like a cone, and you have to make those weird slits, or you do any kind of fabric work or anything like that, you're always having to cut little slits to make it fit around a tapered surface. Because, because you can take, like, a can... And wrap tape can. around it, yep. and you'll never know that it was a round surface as it goes around the can. It's got to be on a tapered neck, and that to me is a critical component in all of this. Yeah, yeah. unless the lift that you do off like a soda can or a beer can includes right up close to the, the lid, the mouth kind of right. area, where it starts right. to go in. The taper. The taper, right? You get some of it there. It's... Right. I mean, it's not as extreme as trying to do a lift off of a light bulb, which right. is as much more curvy and multiple area, you know, dimensions of curve that that make it super complex. Where you get all of these these kind of weird edges yes. in the in what parts and, and, of the tape touch and, and the, the surface. Yep. The term that is used throughout all this too is scalloping. Right. That's the that's the term I've always learned and knew about, and that's again one of the experts very clearly brings up that term. It's scalloping. You get this weird scalloping at the edges that is a hallmark sign of tapering, which every single person I showed it to, without telling them, was the first thing that they noticed. Which is what experts in this case, Pat Wertheim and others that got involved, all looked at them and went, "Wait, there's scalloping there." That comes from a, well, they said curved, but again, specifically should be tapered surface. Right. Where, where you've got the, the curve going around the equator, so to speak, of the surface, but it's also curving in a different direction as you go like up and down, like kind of as you go towards the neck of a vase, you know, that's, right. that's the kind of thing you would get. And I'm definitely noticing that on here on what's labeled as lift two, which is the one that right. says it came from the uh, the top corner of the jewelry box now back on lift one which is supposed to have come from a vase there's a little bit maybe but but definitely less there's still creases yes. but WTFs. You know, <laughs> exactly these weird these i mean these come on like figure out how wrinkle to tape folds yes. not have wrinkles go right through the latent right but so on this one as i'm looking at it i see the kind of powder noise you get in the background go all the way out to the left hand edge go all the way to the top end of the bottom of of the tape and right. then on the right hand edge you get a little kind of weird shape maybe a scallop but it, you know that's the only kind of edge where the the background doesn't go all the way out to the edge and right. then back on to number two, the print goes all the way to the left, well, all the way to the bottom, you know, to the left for the most part, to the right for maybe half of it, but the top is all, you know, it has a lot of that scalloping. Like they put the tape on with kind of the bottom of the, the tape there onto the surface first and then kind of pushed it up onto the prints higher up, but then yeah. started to get into a curvy area and, yes. and then couldn't get it all to touch. Yeah, you cut your losses. You try to do as best as you can to get up in, into the, the tapered area, recognizing that you're going to start getting everything kind of bunching and getting these folds. So, yeah, I mean, to me, it just seems like a very simple explanation. This looks like it came from a vase and that maybe the two lifts have been switched. Yeah. The other one came from the jewelry box and this came from a vase and that in writing it down... 
if, like you said, it wasn't written immediately or both lifts were made and they got swapped somehow, then lift number two comes from the vase and maybe lift number one comes from the jewelry box. But even then, there's some dispute about that. Yeah, definitely some dispute because one of the other big points that gets raised in this case is the background. That on this jewelry case, it's got a wooden top with wood grain in it. So you would expect to see some of that grain present in the, the tape itself. And, I mean, it kind of depends on on a few different things. Right? Even a wooden box that's like super glossy, it's covered in quarter inch of shellac, right? You're not going to have the wood grain come through that. But but you know, depending on the box, you can definitely get that coming through. Right. But Even that, painted wood will have wood grain. Exactly. So that's, that's not really visible in the background of lift two. But it's also not really visible in the background of lift one either. Right. Yeah, this is a really interesting point and one that I, I was confused by and just kept reading over and over. When I first heard about the case from Pat, he mentioned the wood grain. And in fact, at some point we'll discuss this, he went over to England and he ends up trying to make lifts not from the original jewelry box, but from a different one, which is one of the issues that comes up when Pat's report is being disputed. But you know what Pat notices in his lifts is that he always has his wood grain. And then when anyone else had made lifts from the original jewelry box, they talk about the textured background, but they don't actually use the word wood grain. And it wasn't hmm. until I read one of the experts' report, Terry Kent, we'll talk about it a little bit later, and I read Terry Kent's report, he says, and he made actual lifts from this specific jewelry box in the home, he said I, he never saw wood grain, he saw texture. And he described the texture as like a surface of an orange. That it, oh. So it, in his perspective, there wasn't actually wood grain to see, but there should have been texture. And he doesn't see texture in either of the lifts. So that I found that a little surprising and confusing because I, like you, this is a wooden jewelry box. Yes, it's painted. Where's the wood grain? But I'm not sure based on Terry's observations, that wood grain is what we want to look for, but what we can agree on, that there is really no background texture in either lift. Right, it looks like a standard lift where you can't tell what it came from just because yeah. it's, it's, so, it's fairly generic. There's nothing that really gives away from the, the texture, from the background kind of noise, you, what this came from. Right. So, Glenn, you, you mentioned the report or the description from Terry Kent. So another expert that got involved here from, was a, a UK fingerprint expert named Alan Bale. And he wrote up a report, and in the appendix has some, some photos of test lifts. Looks like they are made from this actual evidence jewelry box, not a, a different one, a similar one or anything other than that, just the actual piece of evidence. And I think I see what you mean by that surface of an orange kind of look. Speckling almost. Yeah, it's not like it's not like the growth lines that you know that I would normally associate with the term wood grain. Right. Um, that, like I think of parallel lines running through the wood. Yeah, yeah. These are more like if you were to take a lift off of like the I don't know, like the upholstery on the, in the, your car, like you know that's the a, door, that, the dashboard. You're right. The that's dashboard. exactly what I I think of when I see this. Yes. But not not that that's stronger, right? That's that, that's more pronounced because it's it's like, and you couldn't really get any kind of clean lift off of that usually. This is like that, but more subdued, yes. where it's just kind of in the background and, and something else on the surface would be, you'd still be able to follow the ridges through. Um, yeah, for sure. Right. Yeah, a great point. So, the, the, that's the problem with, with what I think of wood grain is that the wood grain will disrupt the tape. And even if there is latent print residue deposited in the grooves of the grain, it's difficult to get that to lift up without having interference. But this seems like it's not as deep and that it wouldn't necessarily interfere or disrupt a fingerprint, but there should still be background texture. Right. All right. So the grain that we see those here, that type of background noise does not look like the same kind of background that we see in either of the lift cards from the actual scene of the crime. Right. And the other people and at the Greater Manchester Police, and particularly this one person, Newman, who, who was a supervisor there, 
as well as another man by the name of Kershaw, who was a supervisor there. We'll kind of get into them a little bit later. But Newman had made some lifts, some test lifts from the jewelry box and claimed that she didn't see grain in some of the lifts. So she had some lifts without this grainy pattern. And that that was Newman's testimony and, and statement, and she has a report. So... Later, another supervisor by the name of Kershaw makes some test lifts from the top of the jewelry box, but he does get this grain. And so now there are a number of questions that come up, and I guess the big question is, is it possible to powder and dust and lift from from that jewelry box and not have grain? That becomes a huge question at trial and throughout all of this. Is it possible? Can't, can you make a lift from the mm-hmm. surface and not have that texture show through, which is not showing through in the evidence lifts? So one of the big differences I'm noticing between the ones from Kershaw and the ones from Newman is Kershaw, it's hard to see like the edges, right? The tape go is, appears to, when it was put down on the surface, was spread out across the entire surface, like you do with your, you know, your thumbnail and you scratch it down so it coats you know you get tape over the whole thing and then lift it off i don't see edges of so definitely none of that scalloping but not even you know the edges you can get from focusing what when you scratch the tape to get it to stick on one area versus another and down in newman's lifts there's definitely like the focus was here let me scratch where the fingerprint is but there's big gaps throughout the print where it just looks like I know that it's that's kind of the even the um the the pattern that you see those like stripy things if you've got like really old tape or tape that's been out in the sun too long or mm-hmm. you didn't scratch it on hard enough so that when you lifted it off it came up in a like a it didn't come off cleanly in one yeah. motion no I, I hear what you're saying what she is marked as or has sorry what Alan is marked as grain in the background noise may not actually be grain but might be almost extrusion marks in the tape or like yeah like you point out when tape doesn't lift off kind of comes off in chunks it's, but it's even difficult the to one, describe but I, I know what you're saying there, there's big gaps where it doesn't look like the tape touched the surface completely. Well, oh, all right. So one thing that we have to discuss here then is one of the big disputes was how the lift was made. The, the crime scene officer, Birchall, says that Bassini used his finger to, to rub the tape down and then lift it off. Pat Wertheim, when he did his test marks, he had used a roller. So like uh-huh. a rubber roller that you might use to ink to your hands. Yeah. So Pat, Pat was taught that way. When Kershaw makes his test lifts, he used a roller as well because that's how he had been taught. So, and, and I believe when Newman did it, she used her finger. She was trying to imitate how Birchall did it at the scene. So there's a lot, again, more questions about can we imitate the exact method used by Birchall at the scene, which is what Terry Kent attempts to do when he comes in. He tries to basically do exactly, use the exact same tape, same kind of pressure, same method, motion, aluminum, flake powder, everything. He's trying to get exactly apples to apples. And in every lift that Terry Kent made, he observed texture. Whether he used light pressure or heavy pressure, in fact, what he mm-hmm. noticed is the heavier pressure that he used, the less the background noise was showing up. It was still always there, but it was not as pronounced heavier pressure on that surface was causing the texture to appear lighter, whereas lighter pressure, it was most pronounced. So, quick aside, after recording these initial episodes, we interviewed Alan McNamara, and that episode is coming in a couple weeks. He provided some extra info on this point. Pat Wertheim confirmed with Alan McNamara that he did not use a roller in his tests, but used his thumbs to press down the tape just like the Sacco. It seems that that this uh, idea that Pat used a roller in his tests came from Newman, but at the appellate trial, this was retracted. Uh, And in all the tests that Terry Kent performed, he was never able to produce a lift that didn't have this background. And that makes sense from my experience. If you've got something with some sort of like a little bit of texture, you can scratch the tape to actually come more in contact into the slight depressions. 
and then you get a cleaner lift. You get less background noise. But you know, just looking through these these samples here, and and hearing you know you kind of explain it in more detail. To me, the grain isn't the the big thing. I mean, that's that's interesting. In Terry Kent's, I think you said in his mm -hmm. samples, you always saw the grain. To to me, the the grain isn't the the really standout bit about the actual evidence lifts. It's that all of these samples have no scalloping, and the ones right. from the scene, man, it is just hugely obvious. Like that's the thing that stands out as yeah. obvious is. It's had to have come from something curved and there's just like some of the shapes are like, you just can't get that just by, you know, having your finger touch it. But I mean, in the end, the, really the, the, the thing that would have you know put this to bed once and for all was, you know, taking photographs of the uh, latents <laughs> before actually lifting them off the surface, which I was reading or saw in, I think the, the program that aired in the UK describing this way back 20 years ago. That was the recommended practice at the time for senior crime officers to do, but it right. wasn't done in this case. Right, and digital technology was still kind of emerging. They weren't using digital technology. On volume crimes, you know, in class I'll tell students, I'll give a pass on that. I mean, I, I, I will. But then you would document a little bit better in your notes. And sketches, right? You draw a sketch of where it came from. And again... They would say gravitational arrows, but I would say directionality arrows. That, to me, was sort of the basics. And they did have someone from the National Training Center come in and look at this case and the documentation and said, well, here's what the minima are in the field at that time, you know, in 2000, 2001, and said, this doesn't meet the minima. This is, is actually a poorly documented scene. And this is the person who trains all of the Sockos there and all the fingerprint experts, they come through that college, the police training college. So I, I thought that was actually a pretty nice objective assessment on, yeah, this didn't really even meet the standards of the time. So I'm looking at the picture of the whole lift card. Where, I, am I missing something? Where's the arrow, the gravitational arrow? It's not there. That's, what, that's one of no. the issues. That's <laughs> one of the things that's missing. A sketch, the arrow and a better description of the location and other objects that were dusted. That's exactly what the National Training Center said. Right. Another quick aside here. Uh, Alan also pointed out that there may be an arrow on the side of the lift card. On the left side of the lift, the Sako wrote his initials across the edge of the tape, which is standard practice. There may be an arrow that he included as part of his initials, Looking at the image, it's unclear. The ink has been worn away a little bit, so it's hard to tell. It's a maybe. I didn't do a whole lot of scene work back in the day, but but on occasion would it would assist in especially like vehicle stuff. And you know, in going through, I may not write the like case number down on each card as I went, but I definitely did a sketch in between each lift, showing exactly where I lifted that from. Sure. And then I could go back in and say like you know truck with this license plate just because uh, you know but yeah that was that was the only thing i'm 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 doing a lifts of is this uh, this truck and i'm I got a picture of where it was on the truck so i know i'm not mixing anything up but the uh, you know here it's you know it's really obvious how you could get that mixed up if you're not doing that sketch showing where it came from right did you basically write down the minute you you made this lift. Did you write all that stuff? So those words might have been added later. So I didn't see this, speaking of other pens, I didn't see this written down anywhere else. But the, the kind of the big true color version of these, of these lifts, does yeah. the, the words jewelry box look a little bit in blue ink versus everything yeah. else? Yeah, that, that, so, all right. So later in the case, after he's convicted and during the appeal process, hires a, a question document examiner to look at the handwriting to see if these were effectively doctored. Was all this information you know, done at the, by the same person, or was it added later? Because the lifts were made on May 30th, but they actually weren't dropped off at the Bureau until a couple of days later on June 2nd. So there's a few days where they're with the crime scene officer, and mm. it's interesting, right? So yeah. at what point did all the information actually get written down? Because what the Bureau says that when they got the lifts, that was it. Everything, everything on the list was on the lifts at that point. 
But in those couple of days, when did that, that information get recorded? So he, he hires a document examiner. The document examiner looks at the different inks that are involved. I mean, you can see a little bit of color differentiation, but he does a task with, I believe, infrared light and sees that these were different pens. Okay. So when Birchall is asked about it, he's like, look, I've got a whole bunch of different pens. What I might have had with me in the house might have been one pen, and that's what I was marking, but I might have added some other information then, like added vase and jewelry box, grabbed a different pen at that point. So that's where I see this crack open a little bit in this could you have swapped these? Could you have been mistaken about where these came from? If your notes weren't so good at the scene, and then you're kind of relying on, the, and this is just you know another job, one of many that you're probably doing. I think he said he maybe attends like 400 scenes a year, maybe 500 scenes a year. Jesus. So he's doing multiple a day. Is there any way you could have mistaken where this lift came from? And again, their position, Greater Manchester Police, their position was absolutely not. No way. This is where it came from. We are 100% sure about it, and we will take that to court. And that's, that's still their position to this day. Is that correct? The, the short answer is yes, but no one at that bureau remembers this case because no one from this case is still at that bureau. Right. They've all retired. They've all moved on. And that bureau, I've talked to modern examiners there. None of them even know of this case. Wow. So there's like a white background, but I think that's just paper background just so that you could see the writing on this card. But the lift itself looks, you know, there's like this yellow sticker that you can see wrapped around to the back. And and then there's the tape in the middle, right? That's... Yes. Okay. Yeah, we'll, we'll post this picture online because, yeah, it's, it's a good photograph of what the lift, quote-unquote, looks like. You can see it's very faint powder because that's this, you know, grayish powder. And it's, a, it's this, like, almost cutout of an acetate overlay sheet that you might put on an overhead projector and then there's a, a bit of tape that's been cut and you can kind of see where it looks like it's been sliced by by a scalpel because you can see the incision into the acetate so you cut oh, the ends off oh that's what that's cutting the ends off i was trying to figure out why the ends were curved we used to do that all the time you just cut it off there and why the curve like extended past the end of the tape but it's it's it, it cut through the tape and put a little scratch into the the plastic yep. Backing. Yeah, that's what, yeah, that's where you run your scalpel through it and cut it. Got it. Okay. See, and I always use the knife kind of parallel to the surface of the card, not cutting into mm -hmm. the card. So that's yes. why I, I, I usually cut it at the edge of the card as well. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, this particular image has some little yellow labels on it with some initials KFK12 and KFK2. That is referring to prints that were identified on that lift after McNamara right. was convicted. So we'll have to come back to that. But we just want, that's what that's referring to. Those were prints identified later that ends up being the homeowner. Now, just to be clear here, the other prints identified in this case weren't on the same card as the print from Alan McNamara. They were on the, the other card, had five latents, which they identified three of them to Mrs. Shears, one of the homeowners. But these were on different cards, right? So that's one of my big questions, and unless you know it or found it, I want to ask Alan about this. This is actually a pretty critical part. After he was convicted, Kershaw went back. He took an, another set of elimination prints from Shears and then compared all the other fragments on lift two to Shears and then made identifications to her later. That is the foundation of their appellate defense. So if you go to what's called lift TB1 written on? Yes. So, in fact, this may be a very important time to, to discuss what you're, you're bringing up because it looks like there's these identifications to the homeowner, Mrs. Shears. But from several images that we are looking at, one is on lift one, and that's the one that was said to have come from the vase, but... Again, as we discussed, there's a number of prints that are identified to Mrs. Shears on that. And then on the jewelry box one, uh, there are some prints that are identified too, I think, to Mrs. Shears as well. The problem I... with all of this... Hmm. Okay. I, I just don't see what they're pointing to with these extra arrows, right? So on, on lift one, I can see it. There's, there's like five prints overall. 
I remember reading, they identified three of them. There's kind of three across the middle. That looks good. They all have cores. They, they all look more or less good enough to, to identify. And then right at the edge of the print, at the bottom, there's two more where you just have kind of tips. Looks like the cores are just kind of barely cut off. I think they labeled one of those. They just never identified to anybody. And the other one is of questionable identifiability. And then on sure. to lift two, there's the big nice one that's from Alan McNamara. And then I, there's kind of just some smudges that are all worse than any of the five on lift one. And I think I'd mark all of them as no value. Maybe it's hard just to tell exactly what that arrow is pointing to, but I don't, I just don't see anything on that card. That's, but then again, it's also not the greatest scan of that card. So. Right. This is one of those areas where I'm going to have to sort of defer to maybe the undisputed facts in the case, but yeah. let, let's, let's put a finer point on this. From the documentation we're looking at, it's very hard to see which ones they were saying of value. The documentation in this case is not what we would think of today, where they have made separate images of each one. They've charted out the features. Effectively, there are five latent prints they've identified to Mrs. Shears, the homeowner, two on the jewelry box, and three on the vase. I don't, from the fragments that we're looking at, I don't know that I would call some of those identifiable. I have some thoughts about how British practices, particularly English examiners at this time, were doing their work in the UK. And there are some other things that pop up about this agency, including erroneous identifications and other issues. All yeah. I know is that other experts later have looked at these, and everybody agrees Mrs. Shear's prints are on both lifts. Now, I don't know how many are IDs I would agree with or not, but other experts have all said, yep, those are her prints on both lifts. Hmm. Okay. I, I can't confirm that. I can't confirm any of the IDs in this particular case. We don't right. have the known prints to be able to do that. And a final aside for this video, we got a little confirmation from Alan on this. Uh, lift 2, this is the, the lift labeled jewelry box with the, the latent print that was ID'd to Alan, also had one latent identified to Mrs. Shears, but just one. The scan of this lift card is decent, but not great. We can see clear detail in the McNamara latent print, but the other latents on the card don't have great clear detail. Uh, I would question an ID to Mrs. Shears on this card, but would also need a better scan of that card and access to her known prints to say anything definitive. Uh, but wanted to make sure that was really clear. So essentially what that, what that rules out more or less is the possibility that the, these lifts got mixed up from a different case at like a different scene across town and brought here because I guess we haven't really gone into the, 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 the main defense theory. There's this possibility that, that since Alan McNamara worked at this store selling, selling all these home goods, you know, at some point maybe he had come in contact with these, this vase and either at his shop or looking at merchandise at some other wholesaler and it eventually made its way into this house. So Mrs. Shear's prints on it kind of, you know, confirms that at least the idea that these lifts came from inside this particular house, but that still leaves the possibility of this defense theory that that's how Alan McNamara's prints got onto this object through some sort of legitimate means. Yes, that's, that's exactly it. Here's the, the thing is that that information, the identifications to the elimination source, don't happen until after Alan is convicted. We're going to circle back to this, but that becomes the thing that Alan's basing his appeal on, is that had we known this going to trial, we would have had a very different defense strategy. Finding mm. out this later is withholding critical information from us. Why weren't these compared previously? Since... They took Mr. and Mrs. Shear's prints basically when she returned on May 31st. She's notified that the home's burglarized. They come back from vacation. The crime scene person or the person at the scene takes elimination prints. They have them. Later, those are destroyed at some point in this case. And that's why Kershaw, the supervisor, has to go and get a new set. But he only gets a new set from Mrs. Shear's, not from Mr. Shear's. But they do get a set from her, compare them after he's been convicted. He hasn't gone to jail yet, but he's been convicted. He's not been sentenced yet. And then says, 
hey, you know what? Five of these match the homeowner. And we still have a couple that are unidentified, but five match the homeowner on both lips. Right. And that's clearly critical evidence that should have been disclosed and available. You said that came out not until the, the appellate trial? Or the appellate no, hearing? No, it, it, no it, it comes out in that month after he's been convicted by the jury, but not sentenced and goes to prison. Got it. So you want to go back to the timeline a little bit and we'll fill in a couple of holes? Yeah. Sure. All right. So I mentioned homeowner comes back, they take the elimination prints, they run it through APHIS. Listeners might be wondering why he was in, why was Allen in the database in the first place? I mean, if he's such an upstanding citizen, why does he have criminal record? This is interesting, too, and I want to get into this part with Alan. But it looks like in 1985, he had a cannabis conviction for, like, cannabis residue, and that, which is actually pretty common in the U.K. They didn't smoke a lot of marijuana, but they had a lot of, as I recall my friends there, did a lot of hashish. So a lot of residue and hash was kind of more common there. And he was caught with it and convicted, although this is not clear even though he had a conviction, I don't know that they took his prints, or if they did, later they expunged them. Because that's not the card that they hit on. They hit on a different card from 1991, when he was living in this neighborhood called Braitmet. And in this neighborhood, he got into an altercation with his neighbor. And it just said altercation. I don't know if it's like a fight or what, but he gets into an altercation. The police arrive and give him a warning, and they took his prints. And it's those prints that hit in the system. So mm-hmm. I do, I do want to talk to Alan a little bit about that. And I think he's got some more info about the, his days in Braitment. Because at some point when he's arrested, the DC, this constable that picks him up and arrests him, his name is DC Hart. He basically says, I know you did this. It's you because I know you lived in Braitmart or Brait, Braitment. And he actually says it rather. He swears. He said, I, I, I think... I, you effing lived in Breitmart or something, Breit, sorry, Breitmet. And at, at trial, this DC is asked about, did you say this to him in the car when you arrested him and were driving him, you know, basically to the station? And the DC says, absolutely not. I said nothing like that. The, the quote that Alan gives is so specific and so odd. I mean, I find it to be very credible and believable. So mm. this is a little weird. I want to dig in with Alan on this, but it's not really relevant to the evidence right now. Right. But it's, it's part of something else that I think we'll end up exploring with Alan. Do you think it could be a thing where just that officer had, had looked up like the, the, the past arrest of the guy that they were about to go pick up and saw that the, the, is, the arrest that was is from my, there? Yes. That's my underlying theory as well, that it's probably nothing more than that. Right. But the fact that he said, no, nah, I basically didn't know anything about him or knew this, it seems odd. And it seems odd that you would say anything like that. But mm, we'll, let's get Alan's point on that. Sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. Yeah. N- now he's been arrested. He's been charged. He's out on bail. Hires Pat Wertheim. He get, uh, Pat gets involved in October of 2000. Pat goes over there, makes his tests, write a report. Pat says this didn't, didn't come from a a wooden jewelry box, a flat wooden jewelry box for all the reasons we talk about. Then when Pat writes his report, the GMP gets very concerned and they start doing their own test. So Jacqueline Newman, we mentioned her, she makes some lips and she says in some of the lips that she made, trying to use the same technique that Birchall used, she didn't get this, this texture. And then, you know, she goes through this and she's like, no, I, I think everything looks on the up and up here. I, it looks like you can make a lift from this jewelry box and it seems fine. You don't always get this texture. And the method that he used also can produce scalloping from flat surfaces. So in her view, lifts are fine. And then there's the dispute between a roller versus a finger. So then Terry Kent gets involved a couple of months later in March of 2000. Terry Kent goes up there, and now he tries to do apples-to-apples comparison. And I think Terry's tests were spot-on. I've known Terry for years. Terry is very English. He's so English. (laughs) (laughs) He's painfully English. And his report comes through that way. His report is very measured, and he never really says anything definitive, although I would like to read a few things from the report. Oh, absolutely. All right. He says, although curved tapered wrinkles may appear more commonly when lifts are taken from curved surface, this is not the only time that they arise. In fact, wrinkles 
on lift two only show minimal curvature. I do not believe any conclusions could be drawn from this. So Terry's not convinced that the wrinkles and the curvature is necessarily critical here. He also says, I agree generally with Pat Wertheim's point C that a textured surface such as the top of an evidence jewelry box, would normally produce unique background noise. However, I would not describe this as wood grain texture. Make the point that substantial pressure using the same type of tape as used by the GMP can eliminate most, but not in my experiment, all of this texturing. So he always had this texturing. He then goes on to say, I would agree that the general appearance of lift 2 is more consistent with what one would expect from a smooth, non-porous surface. So finally, in conclusion, Terry Kent says, looking at the shape and of the scalloping and the, the everything else and all the texture and all these things after Terry Kent's test, and a couple other things we haven't talked about and may not get to, considering the subsequent history of the jewelry box after the alleged incident, I do not believe it is possible to come to any more definite view of the provenance of lift number two. There are significant inconsistencies which I have identified between the appearance of the lift, number two, and the result of my experiments on the box as it is now, and what one might normally expect from this type of exhibit. I cannot be sure, however, that these could not have resulted from differences in technique and the state of the surface. There's a lot of conjecture about what might have been on the surface. One of the things that surprises me about the Terry Kent thing, again, I know Terry, he's a wonderful guy, he's just so very English, and this report is very measured, it basically says, this doesn't look normal, and it doesn't fit my observations, but I can't rule out all possibilities and say with any definitive conclusiveness, this lift did not come from there. And knowing the personality of Terry, compared to knowing the personality of Pat Wertheim and Alan Bale, or... <laughs> the exact opposite of Terry Kent in their views and how they kind of project themselves. And if anyone wants to know more about Alan Bale, I've known him for years too. He was one of the experts in the Yara Plaza case here in the United States in a Daubert hearing who was challenging the reliability of basically the FBI's fingerprint examinations and said some very over-the-top things that he was quoted on. The quote that that comes to mind is, when he was asked about looking at the FBI's training materials and the kinds of latent prints that they're trained on and tested on for competency, he basically said, these were so easy. If I had shown these to anybody that I worked with in our office, we would have fallen out of our chairs laughing at how easy these were. Those are the kind of things that Alan sometimes will say. He, He is a very big personality. Terry's report is very measured. And Terry never basically says, I can disprove this. Now, here's where I disagree a little bit with Terry later, and I don't like this, but this is in here, and I think it needs to be brought to to light. Later during post-conviction, after McNamara is going through his appellate, Terry writes a letter to McNamara's attorney and says, look, I did not express an opinion on whether or not the lift came from the jewelry box. I did not comment on what my opinion would be on the balance of probabilities perhaps I should have. My statement indicates that there was no clear overriding proof from my examinations that the print was not lifted from the jewelry box. Perhaps there was a technique unknown to me, or I'm, I'm now paraphrasing, or something else going on, or multiple factors, maybe furniture polish or something on there basically could have been a number of other factors. I was very cautious in my statement. In my statement, however, I made it quite clear that I could not reproduce the appearance of the lift in question. And I always got some amount of texture in the background, not wood grain, but basically like the surface of an orange. So he basically said, I can't disprove it, but my test always showed some texture in the background, no matter what pressure I made a lift, test lift at from the original jewelry box. Here's the, the, the quote, though, that drives me a little crazy. In my opinion, a good defense barrister would have simply put me on the witness box and asked, in your opinion, was this lift from this box? My answer then would have been no. No different to what I have said more recently to Alan McNamara. This is not in conflict with my statement. One is evidence of opinion based on my experience and experiments. The other, the statement, is hopefully an objective set of scientific observations. 
proving beyond all reasonable doubt the negative, the lift didn't come from the surface is extremely difficult. I don't like that. I don't like this, you know, if you put me on the stand and asked me the right questions, I would have told you that my personal view is it did not come from that surface. But my report, based on my observations, basically said, yeah, I can't say either way. I, I, I don't like that. I, next time I see Terry, I might ask him about this. Yeah, that's, that's definitely interesting. I, it, it's, it's very English to me. Yeah, I'd always heard about this case, right? And, and heard about the wood grain and the vase and, and all this stuff, but I never, never seen the images before. I guess I, I just haven't been in one of your classes where you, where you showed or I don't remember seeing them in, in the class. So I was expecting actually to see something a little more clear cut. So I could see where you know, he's coming from and wanting to be a little measured in what he, he writes down yes. in his report. I, he's I being at least, very, very neutral. Right. I can at least you know, understand where he's coming from there. I think I might go a little bit stronger based on the, the scalloping side of stuff. But the, 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 like you said, the, the worst part would be then to express different, the opinion differently or to different levels or different degrees in a written report versus on the stand if you asked me the magic right question. Right. Yeah, that I, I don't like that. It's not the defense's job to read your mind and figure out what's in your heart of hearts and ask that question. <laughs> I, I understand where Terry's coming from initially, and I, I, after I saw this letter, I went, well, this is, this is strange. <sighs> yeah, so kind of continuing this timeline after Terry Kent gets involved, then a couple of months later, Alan Bale gets involved. Alan visits the GMP he performs his tests as well on the jewelry box, trying to do apples to apples, but there's another criticism. He doesn't use the same lifting tape as the GMP, and he uses slightly different techniques. So again, people are criticizing that it's not what Pat and Alan did are not the same. What Terry did was the same. So Alan does his thing. He writes a report, kind of reaches the exact same conclusions as Pat, has the same issues, brings up why it could not, lift two could not have come from the flat wooden jewelry box. And then the reports are all in, and in June of 2001, the trial begins. And, well, Glenn, before we get into the trial, I noticed that we've been going for about an hour and a half, at least recording. We'll probably cut some of this down, but we, we may be meet, reaching our, our limit here for a for single episode. So why don't we put a pin here right now, we'll come back, we'll talk about trial, some of the other experts that get involved, some uh, how this story hits the news, you know, just some of those, some other details and in a second episode, just you and I, and then looks probably like a, a third one where we bring in Alan. Does that sound like a plan? Cliffhanger. Love it. Cl <laughs> oh, no, I meant the, the movie with yeah. Sylvester Stallone. <laughs> Oh, just 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 a random reference to a nineties. Yeah, yeah, I was flip. I was yeah, just thinking of Stallone movies, and it popped in my head. Cobra, Tango and Cash. Oh my goodness! All right, well, thank you guys all for for listening. If you have any uh, questions or you, know, you want to make any requests of other topics for us to talk about, you'll send us an email: Eric at RayForensics.com or Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com. Also, go to our webpage: DoubleLoopPodcast.com. We've got some fantastic merchandise. The opinions expressed here on our show are those of the speaker, not necessarily anyone that they work for. And I think that's everything, Glenn. So we'll talk to you guys next time. Yeah, that sounds all good, Eric. And looking forward to continuing the story in the next episode. All right, talk to you guys next time. Have a great week. Bye, everybody. Have a good week. <laughs>